the opportunity for you, all of you, to invest in the next generation coming up is a huge opportunity that the scriptures actually tell us we have a responsibility for. Godly men to train godly men and women to train all of this to bring them up. So let me encourage you just to be praying and ask how you can serve. And I promise you at the end of the week, you will be tired, right? You'll be like, "Woo, gosh, I never want to do that again until next year. And that's fine. We won't do it again until next year, okay? Just for you. But at the same time, it will be a blessing. I promise you um, a blessing. And you'll have a lot of stories of things, kids, crazy things kids say. Um, and especially if you are able to watch over mine during that time, you'll have some stories. But I'm thankful for you, so consider that and see how you might be able to serve. There are many different things to do, not just uh, you know that you could, you could be able to, to jump in with. So please pray and consider how you could help and invest in that group. The other, I want to mention a few things. Thank you so much for your kind words, many of you reaching out. My grandmother did pass away. She passed away. Uh, Saturday morning of this past week, she was 100, and she would have been 101 on June 5th. So that's roughly, what, a week and a half away. So she would have been 101. I remember on her 100th birthday that uh, she told me she hopes she doesn't, or she hopes she was not around for her 101st birthday, and the Lord honored that. She was more than ready to go, and uh, a saint and had been a saint all my life, as far as I can know, just a sweet lady. So we were able to do that. She made me promise. She has a son who's actually my father, who is a pastor. And so I thought, this makes perfect sense. Let dad preach the funeral, but my nanny, that's what I called her, Nanny Bet. Um, I spent half the time calling her Nanny Butt, but that's okay. <laughs> she, had, uh, she had this uh, wonderful way of smiling and loving when I said it. But, but I... You know, I thought, my dad, it's perfect. This is your son. She was dead convinced I should preach her funeral. So I cried my way through it and, and preached it and was very thankful that I did. One of those things that you, that you know is tough to do, but at the same time, you're thankful you did it and you regret it if you didn't. Um, so we were able to do that on Monday morning, just a sweet time to reflect upon her. Her favorite verse that I helped her cross-stitch. I cross-stitched one thing in my life. And that, was, uh, and that was with her, and her favorite verse was, uh, a good name is rather be chosen than great riches. And so she lived that out, and that was a testimony for all of us. And so uh, we have that. I, I, I took that little frame, and I have it where she cross-stitched it and kept it um, there. And so that was just the verse that I was able to speak to about her life. So I'm thankful for that, and thank you for your prayers. We were able to get, to get through that. also want to say tonight... Um, I had the privilege this afternoon to spend time with one of the preeminent and premier historians in Southern Baptist life, and uh, Dr. Greg Wills is all the way in the back back there, way, way back there out of see him. Dr. Wills is a professor at Southwestern Seminary. Um, he has uh, really has written a good, a good many um, books on church history, especially one I would commend to everybody in the room. It's the history of Southern Seminary. Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is 150 years old in 2009, and he wrote the history on that. Just if you're interested in any way, Southern Seminary, as you know, was started and founded here in Greenville, uh, South Carolina. If you go down, come down, and I don't even know the name of the streets real well, but come down 385, go into town, and you look up over here on the hillside across from, I still call it the Bilo Center, don't y'all? Because I can't pronounce the new thing. Um, the well, good, good. You look across from that, and you'll see streets like 
Broadus, Boyce, Toy, Manley, Williams, those are all founders of the seminary that, that, that had. So if you're interested in those kind of things, Dr. Wills has written a book that would help you with it. And I was gracious that he's here from Southwestern. He's not, I, I joke, I call him that because he is, but he would hate that I did that. And that's part of the reason I do it anyway. Um, but also just a dear friend of mine. So I was happy to have him. He is here. He's been my professor. He's here checking up on me tonight. Um, even before I came up here, he was telling me how to do this. So I'm thankful, thankful for Greg Wills being here. Uh, Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. We dipped our toe into Genesis chapter 4 last week. And we're going to continue, continue there. Now, if you remember uh, what we discussed getting here, we discussed Genesis 3.15. And so I said last week, trying to help you understand the importance of Genesis 3.15, it is the proto-evangelion, it's the first good news, first gospel, it's the first prophecy in Scripture telling us of the Christ, pointing us to the Christ. And so it's the first one, proto being first, good news, evangelium. So it's the first one. And so you have that, Genesis 3.15, but it also, I make the argument that it also becomes the thesis of Scripture, if you will. From this point on, we recognize after looking through Genesis 3, after seeing Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, and then you have the verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened, they knew they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Once this happens, the only way forward from Genesis chapter 3 is the cross. The only solution is the cross. And so now we see the damage that sin has done immediately. Sin has destroyed relationships. We saw last week, we walked through how the relationship between uh, man and woman was tainted, was broken because of sin. We saw how the relationship between man and earth was broken and made difficult because of sin. And we saw how the relationship between man and God was broken now because of sin. And so sin has come in and brought devastation. The only solution, as Dr. Johnson pointed out as we looked, as many worldviews try to give some solution to the problem of evil and sin and everything else, the only solution that answers it all is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so the only way forward from Genesis 3 is the cross. And so what doesn't happen for us, it doesn't happen where God says, all right, y'all have screwed this up. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my only begotten son. He's going to come down. He's going to take on and he's going to become one of you. 100% God, 100% man, become one of you. He's going to live a perfect life for 30 years as a carpenter and be happy. He's going to come out of that. Then he's going to show himself for who he really is, teaching, doing miracles, do all these things. He's going to be hated, despised, go to a cross, die on that cross, be raised again, and he will show himself to be victorious over all of it. It would have been really cool if God would have said that in Genesis chapter 4, right? But that's not what he does. He begins to lay out this plan for us in human history, what we call progressive revelation. God is going to reveal to us in this progressive way one little bit at a time. And now I want to remind you of the illustration I gave at the beginning of this. And maybe you haven't forgotten, so I'll give it again. It's that illustration of how the scriptures are laid out for us. And I use Bob Ross, the famous painter. He's an incredibly famous painter. And y'all know him. Remember, he's got the afro and the long pinky nails. And so uh, Bob Ross is painting on PBS his whole life. 
and he's doing the paintings and he does the happy little tree. You know, he takes the canvas and he does one brush stroke down the middle and you think he's ruined the whole thing. But then he keeps doing brush stroke after brush stroke. In the end, it's a beautiful picture of a nice stream with a couple mountains in the background, some trees, a couple deer drinking out the stream and everything looks glorious, right? But it doesn't look like that at the beginning. What you have in scripture is God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins to paint one brush stroke at a time, one brush stroke at a time. And each brush stroke is a story in God's word that finally when the picture becomes clear, Jesus Christ is the answer to all of it, right? He becomes the picture that scripture is painting. So all of scripture is pointing us toward Jesus. And I use that other illustration in this, and that's that movie Sixth Sense. Y'all probably never seen it, so I can spoil it. But it's one of those movies that has a twist in it that's so incredible that it changes how you view the entire movie, right? And so it is with Scripture. You cannot read. If you started in Genesis 1 and read all the way through, when you got to Jesus and you see the climax of all of this, you go back and read it. You read it different than you've ever read it before. You cannot see it the same way twice, in other words. You have to understand the beautiful picture that's taking place. So when we look back as believers, this side of the cross, with the scriptures complete in our hand, we're looking back through Christ and understanding that all of this is pointing us to Christ. And so we see in Genesis chapter 315, what's happening here is the Lord is go ahead and painting that first brushstroke, if you will, right down the middle of the campus to say, the one you are looking for is the one who is going to crush the serpent. We're looking now for the serpent crusher. And throughout all of history, you're going to see these two uh, genealogies, if you will, these two seeds, if you will, that's going to be competing against each other. The seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. And the seed of the serpent is going to deal their blows over and over and over again. But ultimately and finally, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent, put him to death and kick him out, right? He'll deal with him. So we are now in scripture looking for the serpent crusher. And the first story coming out of this testifies to all of this. The first story comes, and like I've said, the good old days ended in Genesis 3. And how do we know that? Because you look to Genesis 4, and immediately you got brother versus brother. Immediately you got murder. Immediately you see the devastation of sin. And you're going to see the devastation of sin in ways that we may not expect. But what happens here is you have Adam and Eve. They have children. And so um, you already saw we're talking about the seed of the woman. We're looking for the one who's going to come up from the woman who's going to crush the serpent. Immediately, remember Revelation chapter 12, that crazy passage in Revelation 12 where it says that the serpent is waiting, right? The serpent is sitting there, and as the woman is giving birth, the serpent is looking to devour the seed immediately in Revelation 12. And so that's exactly what we see here in chapter 4. We see the man and the woman begin to have children, and the serpent's looking to destroy them. Because the serpent knows that the seed of the woman will kill him unless he kills them first. It's his desire. And so you have Cain and Abel. And you have Abel bringing a sacrifice that is acceptable. And how is that? How do we know it's acceptable? Look, first, the Lord accepts it. He is the shepherd priest. Remember, we discussed this last week. He's the shepherd priest that brings the acceptable sacrifice before the Lord. 
And, and, and I would make the argument that his sacrifice is about the sacrifice God brings is acceptable because it's about blood, not beauty, right? It's about what's needed to atone for sins. And so here he makes this. And if you flip over with me, because you remember, I want, one of the goals I have in this, and sometimes I get to talking too fast, y'all know, because y'all told me that. And so one of the goals I have in this is to show you that the best interpreters of Scripture are Scripture themselves. And so do not make your first jump just to the internet to figure out what's going on here. Make your first jump to the text to figure out what's going on here. And so what does it say about Abel? Turn with me to the Hall of Faith. Anybody know what the Hall of Faith is? Hebrews 11. I love you guys. That's great. Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews 11, we see the heart behind the sacrifice. It's not just that Abel brought the right sacrifice, although that's true. God tells us how we are to worship him. We don't get to worship him on our own ways, in our own devices, or however we think is best. God has told us how we are to worship him, right? And so God does this. Abel brings the sacrifice, but it's not just what he does. It's how he does it. He brings the sacrifice by faith. By faith. I believe that means ultimately that Abel knows it is not the blood actually of this thing that he's bringing that sacrifices. It's the sacrifice that points to something greater. So he says in chapter 11, verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so Abel's sacrifice was acceptable because he brings it by faith, right? He brings the sacrifice by faith and it's more acceptable than Cain because whatever sacrifice Cain brings, right or wrong, whether you want to make the argument that it was okay for him to bring a non-blood sacrifice and do it, that's fine. But why was it not acceptable? Because Cain does not bring it by faith. He does not bring it by faith. And so you see this when you begin to talk about it because he says, uh, Cain, a worker of the ground, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock, the fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel. And his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was what? Angry. Why is it that that says this? Cain was angry and his face fell. His demeanor fell. His anger came over him and began to consume him. Why is it? Abel offers it up by faith. Cain brings his offering and it's not acceptable. Cain is mad that God didn't accept it. Because Cain represents... Not just those who are trying to do this in their own power. I think Cain represents this seed of the serpent, if you will, that is going to try to bring a sacrifice on his terms, not on God's terms. Cain believed that God owed him to accept this sacrifice. Whatever it may be, Cain believed, God, I'm going to bring this and you better honor this. You better like what I bring. And I think that's crazy in our mind to talk, but I truly believe there are a lot of people who do the same thing when they come to worship with the Lord. Whatever I bring, you better like this. I'm going to give you what I want to give you, and you like what you get, right? 
And I believe there's a lot of people who think that they can come to the Lord God like that. And the Lord God takes no, no care to accept that sacrifice. No care to accept that worship or that offering. Cain gets mad because God doesn't accept it. Abel brings it by faith. Cain does not. And Cain expects God to accept it anyhow. And so here he does not accept it. The Lord tells him, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. It wants to overpower you. It wants to destroy you. It wants to uh, take what is yours. You must rule over it. Let me go ahead and give you all a phrase that I think is important for us to remember every single day. It's not, uh, it's not original with me. The first place I saw it put like this was in John Owen's writings from 500 years ago. But he simply says it, and let me put it in uh, 2021 English, right? If you're not killing sin, sin will be killing you. If you're not putting it to death, it will put you to death. There is a battle that we cannot be indifferent on here. There's a fight that we cannot be indifferent in. Either sin is going to destroy you or you have to destroy it. You have to destroy it. And that's exactly what the Lord tells Cain. Cain, you need to recognize that you're on dangerous ground here because sin is looking to destroy you. And unless you destroy it, unless you put it in its place, unless you set it aside and overcome it by faith and trusting in me, it will destroy you. And what happens? Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, in a similar fashion as what happened in the garden, whenever the Lord comes into the garden and says, where are you? The Lord asked a question. No, he knows the answer to it. But the Lord asked a question here to Cain in order for Cain to basically on the stand indict himself. Indict himself. Where are you? Where is Abel, your brother? Excuse me. Where is Abel, your brother? And Cain's response is what? I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to take his response in two parts. The thing that shows us that Cain is of the seed of the serpent here is what? His first response to God is to lie. Turn with me in your Bibles again to understand this truth to John chapter 8. John's Gospel chapter 8. There's this sense in which the Pharisees are making this argument about who belongs to Abraham, who belongs to God. We're children of Abraham. They don't even know their past, right? We're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anybody. <laughs> uh, they hadn't read this, I guess. Um, uh, and, and, and even at that time, they're under the uh, rule and the oppression of Rome. So we've never been slaves to anybody. And the Lord says, well, you're not free either because only the Spirit can set you free, right? So we get all of that. And then he comes up and trying to make this clear. There was this movement in liberalism, which is moving away from the truth of Christianity for years, this phrase of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, right? So, so everybody is our children of God and, and everybody's brotherhood together. And so in that phrase, that is not the biblical way to understand the way this works. Because what does the scripture say in John 8, 44? When Jesus looks at them, he says, you are of your father, the devil. 
y'all see that? You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. What was it that the devil was after? It was to kill. Why did he get Adam and Eve to eat? He wanted them dead. Because if they eat of that tree, they'll surely die. And what does he do with Cain? He goes in and he, Cain becomes a murderer, right? You are of your father the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he was a liar and the father of lies. Here, Jesus makes it clear that you are not just simply the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Either you are of your father, the devil, or you are not. You are of your father who is in heaven, right? Which is why Jesus uses the language, and the New Testament uses the language, that we must be adopted out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. We must be brought in, Ephesians 1, into adoption, into God's family, because when we're born, we are of our father, the devil, the scripture says. We love lies and we like to indulge in lies as sinners. And here Cain becomes the first evidence of this. Cain comes up and from the beginning, the devil is getting those to believe his lies just as he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. Now he's done this with Cain and Cain has fallen for the lie that he can come to God on his own terms, however he likes, in whatever way he desires. And God has to answer him positively. God has to bow down to him. And that is a lie from the devil. You cannot just do it how you want to do it. You come to God on his own terms. You come to God as he called, by faith. Because without faith, no, not anyone's, no one sees the Lord, right? And so you come to God by faith. And here, Cain demonstrates that he is a seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15. He is one who's coming in as one of the devil who is bought into this lie and uses this lie. And takes this lie and runs with it. So here, Cain says, I do not know. He knew exactly where his brother was. But he lies, demonstrating the seed of the serpent. But not only that, he asks the next question. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? I want you to know that you may have asked this question a million times in your own life and in your own work and everything else. Um, when your brother, I've got one brother, older brother, and he has, this is recorded, so I want him to hear this if he's listening. He's done some stupid stuff in his life, right? <laughs> that I may get blamed for it or look at it, and I'm like, am I my brother's keeper? No, I don't think so. In actuality, we are. Our responsibility is not just for ourselves, and it never has been. Our responsibility is for one another. Our responsibility is not just to watch over our independent needs in and of ourselves. God has never set us up like that and never structured us like that. We have always been born into and have been fostered in community with one another. That's why our sin never just affects us. It affects everybody around us. And our righteousness and living for the Lord never just affects us. It affects everybody around us. And here is my point. In this, and I'll go ahead in the midst of this and, and, and show you how this works. I said last week that Abel becomes a picture of Jesus, that off the bat, here in chapter four, we get another brush stroke that redemption may come through one who is the shepherd priest who offers up an acceptable sacrifice before God. He's hated by his brothers and he's killed by them, right? 
And in that, we see Christ Jesus himself, the great shepherd, the good shepherd who brings a sacrifice for his people himself, the great high priest. And because his sacrifice is accepted and the brothers around him is not, Pharisees, Sadducees, all those others, their sacrifice is not accepted. When they see what Jesus brings, they get angry, their face falls, and they get mad. And what do they do? They bring Jesus outside the city, Hebrews 13 tells us, outside the camp, lure him into the field, if you will, and there they murder him. The brothers put him to death. And in this, we already get to see a glimpse, maybe another brushstroke on the painting of God's progressive revelation that's pointing us to Jesus. And here Abel comes and he offers up the perfect sacrifice that God accepts by faith and does what God does as, a, as the shepherd priest. And he's pointing us to Jesus himself. And here's the seed of the serpent here, the one who spouts lies and teaches lies and only offers up lies, who says, I don't know where he is when he knew exactly where he left him dead. Here comes the seed of the serpent and he looks at him and he plants a little lie for all of human beings in all of history. It's amazing how biblical literacy works. There's so much of the scripture we miss because, that points us towards redemption, but we hold on to those things that sometimes can help us get out of tough situ situations, right? And so we say, am I my brother's keeper? It's almost as if we think that that's right, that's the Bible's teaching, when in reality the Bible teaches the opposite of that. And we praise God that one came, not separate from us or different from us, but we praise God that one came just like us, a brother to us, and that one who came just like us, who had no ultimate duty other than to sent by the Father to accomplish this, that one came just like us, and he said, I am my brother's keeper. And he died for his brothers and laid down his life for them. And so don't think that we buy the lie of Satan that life is just about me and how I'm to do this. We live together and we seek to build one another up and to encourage one another and go through the New Testament and list out how many one another's there are and see what our responsibilities are. But not only that, you can see it in 1 John. In 1 John, if you flip there, you'll see what John says about our brothers. In 1 John chapter 3, Really, 1 John 3, 16, so it should be easy for you guys. Don't. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this, we know love. Now, that should help you to say this is probably important. How do, we, how do we define love? What is love? By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And because he laid down his life for us, what does it say next? We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Jesus becomes our testimony that the lie of Satan is you don't have to worry about your brothers. You only worry about yourself. You don't have to concern yourselves with this. And so Cain had bought into the lie. I don't know where Abel is, even though he left him dead in the field. And am I really my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. And we praise God for a brother's keeper who came and died for us, right? And laid down his life for his brothers. And so here he says, keep going. 
He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, so, so before we even go, well, I tell you what, if it comes down to it, I'll give my life for my brother. Well, you may think that lets you off the hook, but listen to what he says further. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. In Cain's action, he displayed not love, but hate. In Cain's action, he displayed not righteousness, but self-righteousness. In Cain's action, he displayed not true worship of the Lord, but a dishonoring of God in his place and his position. And in that, we learned exactly opposite of what we should be about and who we should be. We looked to Jesus, the one who died for his brothers. And that's the example we follow. Satan wants us to believe that it's not our responsibility. Satan wants us to believe that it's not our duty. That we just simply worry about ourselves and we, be we become this self-independent kind of person. But the scriptures teach us that not only must we follow after the Lord, we must bring everybody with us that we possibly can. And care for them and love them as Jesus has loved us. Satan is a liar. In the seed here of Satan, Cain, the Cainites, it becomes evident because look what happens. The Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out from me to the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have not... You have driven me away today, away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. In other words, he's going to be cast out. If he's a farmer, the earth is not going to be able to produce anymore because of this curse. Because the blood is spilled in the ground and it's cursed him. So he's not going to be able to produce this. He's going to be running. And Cain saying, they're going to kill me now. It's going to come. This is too much. Isn't it interesting that Cain is not willing to accept the verdict of God even though he became judge and jury to his brother, right? This is how sin works. It justifies our actions which are wrong, but we want to fight against what is right and supposed to be coming to us in true justice. And, and Cain here says, no, this is too much. And so the Lord says, you want to think it's too much? You're going to live in this, and I'm going to make sure no one kills you. So it says here that the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him shall, should attack him. Now, what is this mark on Cain? Nobody really knows that, by the way. You can look at different uh, commentaries. I had one that says it was a tattoo. We know God's against tattoos. He would never do that. It's a joke, by the way. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, <laughs> We had one that said this was a certain haircut, believe it or not, that he may have had a certain haircut. These are good scholars. They're trying to figure out because the Bible doesn't say what this mark is, right? But what the Bible does say is God has made it plain to anyone that Cain is not to be touched, that they are not the judge and jury of Cain. Cain became the judge and jury of his brother and the executioner. They are not. God is. God determines his punishment. 
And so he's going to be clear of this. God determines it. And so this mark, so Cain will not be harmed. But then let's, let's keep on. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any found him would attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahuhalel, and Mahuhalel fathered Methushalel. See, you just got to keep going fast, and it actually works. <laughs> Mahushalel fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zilhah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Let me go ahead and give you a, a life tip. Don't pull the name of your kids, daughters, or sons from Genesis chapter 4. These were not good people, okay? Let me go ahead and let you know that you probably shouldn't pull them from here. Adabor Jabel, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zilhah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Ultimately, what happens here that we see is that we, God has set Cain apart. His verdict has been clear. Noah's earth, and he is to, to now go, his family begins to populate everything and becomes these leaders in making bronze, setting up cities, playing instruments. Becomes these leaders in these, and through this common or grace, if you will, of God, these things happen and population takes place, right? The Cainites. But in this, what happens? In this, you begin to see that the next generation and then the generation after this, coming on down to Lamech, just becomes murderers just like their father. They carry on the tradition of their father, Cain. And so at the beginning of here, you have the setting up of the Cainites, right? Later we'll have the Canaanites. We'll talk about that. But here you have the setting up of the Cainites. They begin to establish everything. And what's going to happen to the Cainites? Does anybody remember? Genesis chapter 6. They become so evil and so wicked that what does God do to them? flood comes and completely destroys them. That God is the judge and jury and executioner, not Cain and not anybody else. And their sinfulness, the wickedness of sin that Cain has only gets worse to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Is Cain his brother's keeper? Absolutely he is. And not only that, his sin is going to affect those after him who follow in his footsteps. Who follow in his footsteps. We have to know that our sinfulness doesn't just affect us. It affects everybody after us. And unless you kill sin, it's going to kill you. And it's going to kill all those around you ultimately and finally. Cain does this. In the midst of it all, we're looking going, okay. The Cainites have been established. The seed of the serpent is pretty clear. But what about the seed of the woman? Abel's dead. Is it over? Is it done? Not only does the Cainites uh, survive, but they become powerful. They're setting up cities and playing instruments and doing all this other stuff. The founders of rock and roll. That's a, a whole nother, whole nother sermon in that. <laughs> Just joking about all those things. We'll cover them later. 
They're doing all of these things. They're becoming powerful. And yet, where is the seed of the woman? And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also was a son, and he called his name Enosh. And at the time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Here, ultimately, we see Abel is dead. Cain is set aside. Judgment is upon him. But God raises up a son named Seth. And Seth is coming in to carry on the line that God said would come. Satan will do everything he can possibly do throughout human history to stop the seed of the woman. He'll do everything he can. But ultimately and finally, he cannot thwart the promises of God. He cannot stop them. That's why when we get to Revelation, what do we say? Jesus wins. No matter what happens, no matter what effort Satan tries, no matter how he destroys or brings down. And friends, you can see that in the church life in modern times. No matter how many leaders fail morally, no matter how many fall aside and sin crushes them and tries to devour them, no matter how many comes, they cannot stop the church. For God's people continue. Just like the book of Acts and how it ends Paul's head is chopped off and he's dead in Rome. But does Acts tell us that? Not at all. Why? Because this isn't about Paul at all. This is about the advancement of the gospel. And every single one of the disciples who became apostles in the book of Acts, every single one of them except one is killed for their faith and one is set apart on the island of Patmos forever, set out there, right, in, in isolation but Acts tells us what? And the gospel went forth unthwarted and unhindered. Because no matter what Satan tries to do, he cannot stop the advancement of the gospel. He cannot stop the truth. He will not thwart the promises of God. And here he gave one of his greatest efforts in Cain and Abel. But God still provides. If you see the genealogy then, just to blow y'all's mind, let's go into chapter 5. <laughs> We've been like 12 weeks. I know I'm moving. I've already gone through chapter 4 just one night. We went 12 weeks on one verse, and now we got, hey, we're going now. This is the generation. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Remember what I told you, that uh, the book of Genesis is basically an ancient genealogy. You have this story of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent and you're walking through this and whenever somebody important comes along you stop and tell that story right we'll come back to this but i want you to know this is exactly what's happening in chapter five you have seth being born you have that section but remember the section is given what's called the toledote section you have that in um genesis chapter two these are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created in verse 2, or excuse me, in verse 4, and now you have another section in Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. 
When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them. He blessed them, named them man, and when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness and in his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years. And he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived, after he fathered Kenan, 815 years. And had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years. And he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived, he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from our painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It's a lot. What do you notice in there? And he died. What did God say would happen if Adam ate that fruit? You will surely die. And what's true of here is as this generation comes, 10 generations from Seth down to Noah, he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And just as God said, sin had entered in. But what also do we see? We see this provision here of generation after generation of how God has provided the seed of the woman. And he's protecting them and keeping them, right? So here becomes this generation of the seed of the woman. And by the way, we're going to start with Adam, and we're going to get all the way to Jesus. Look at Luke's genealogy. And we see the generation of the seed of the woman begin. And this generation of the seed of the woman is different than Cain's generation, which is punished and dies and will be destroyed in the flood. In the midst of this generation, you have this one. You have, and he died, and he died, and he died, except for this one dude. Y'all remember his name? Enoch. Enoch comes along. And he died, and he died, and he died. But Enoch walked with God, and God took him. Even in the midst of death, the genealogy of death, where and he died, and he died, and he died, becomes the refrain of every single one of them. Even in the midst of that, we have a glimmer of hope, don't we? Yeah. 
that death will not have the final say. Death will not have the final say. There's this glimmer of hope that God will take his own. That he will take his own. I'm thankful, as I said, for my grandmother who lived with that hope her whole life. Who told me, she said, Josh, I don't want to live to be 101. Why? Because she knew, she knew death did not have the final say in her life. That the moment she passes from this world, she is to be alive. More alive than she ever has been with him forever in heaven. Amen? And so in this we find that God is going to provide. Even in the midst of all of Satan's efforts to destroy the seed of the woman, God is going to provide a seed who will come along one day. He's going to care for them. He's going to watch over them. And all along the way, he's going to give us glimpses of his glory, how he's going to conquer death. He's going to do it from the shepherd priest. He's going to do it with an offering and a sacrifice that is acceptable for his name. All along the way, we're going to rejoice in not just how we, not just that we get there, the ends when Christ comes, but also the means by which we get there. In each step of the way, he's going to demonstrate to us his faithfulness. How he's going to overcome our sin. And death that has come because of Adam will not have the final say. Life will. It's going to come through his serpent crusher son. It's going to put him to death. So that we may live. All of that we see as we look to God's word. As he's painting this glorious picture of salvation for us through his son Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father we thank you for your word. It's good. So good to us. May we not lose heart. As we see a world of death. A world that glamorizes death. A world that looks to death as if, as if it is the end. We know father that's not true. That death does not have the final say. You do. That, God, there is hope for us, even in the midst of sinfulness, even in the midst of self-righteousness, even in the midst of our own, Father, uh, compartmentalizing who we are and what we do, thinking that our sin is only affecting us. Even in the midst of all of that, Father, you have shown us that we have hope. And our hope, God, our hope is not just, not just in some blood of a bull or a goat, our hope is in the blood of a lamb, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who died for us and rose again. And so, God, help us to recognize that sin will be destroyed, that darkness cannot and will not reign. So, Father, help us to not take part in that which will be destroyed and that which will be done away with. Help us to look to the light. Help us to rejoice in the truth. Help us to look to the one who is faithful. Even against every effort to destroy the promises of God, you always keep your promises. Help us to look to you, Father. Through Jesus Christ, our Son, and the power of the Spirit, all for your name we pray, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you all Sunday as we deal with the sixth commandment, right? Right? Is everybody good with that?